Thank you, choir and orchestra. And if you'd turn your Bible this morning to Isaiah chapter number 55. Isaiah chapter 55, just about the middle of your Bible, a little bit over to the right, but not much. Isaiah chapter 55. Isaiah 55. Stand with me, if you will. Let's read from God's Word. Ho, everyone that thirsteth, come ye to the waters, and he that hath no money, come ye, buy and eat. Yea, come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. Wherefore do you spend money for that which is not bread, and your labor for that which satisfieth not? Hearken diligently unto me, and eat that which is good, and let your soul delight itself in fatness. Incline your ear, come unto me, hear, and your soul shall live. And I will make an everlasting covenant with you, even the sure mercies of David. Behold, I have given him for a witness to the people, a leader and a commander to the people. Now, I want you to look at that verse again. That's our text today. I have given him, referring to Jesus, the coming Messiah. I've given him for a witness to the people, and it calls him a leader. I have given you a leader and a commander to the people. Verse 6, seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way. And the unrighteous man, his thoughts. And let him return unto the Lord, and he will have mercy upon him, and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. Heavenly Father, will you fill me with the Spirit of God that we just sung about, and will you guide and direct every word, every thought, every gesture? I pray, Lord, that you will speak to the hearts of people here. I pray, Lord, that you will give us a fresh new vision for ourselves and for our church. In Jesus' name I pray and for his sake, amen. You may be seated. Well, today we begin the 50th year of our church's ministry. Last week we had our 49th friend day, and as we count time, this is our 50th year. It's the 50th year of my pastorate. I came here as a nine-year-old boy and began preaching in this church, and uh, I'm known for telling the truth every time I stand in the pulpit, right? The first message I ever preached in this church to those 18 people was, what will you do with Jesus, who is called the Christ from the book of Matthew? A probing question, what will you do with Jesus? I preached that same message two or three times in various forms, such a great text. And I've been preaching about Jesus now for 49 years. And I pray that I will continue to talk about Jesus as long as I have breath. And today I want to talk about an aspect of Jesus that is a little different. I want to talk about the world's greatest leader, the Lord Jesus Christ. The world's greatest leader. And I want you to listen to me because what I'm saying is to help you in your life. 
You say, well, I'm not a leader. How could that help me? I think you probably are. Virtually everyone in here is a leader, whether you are aware of it or not. Once I define leadership, you'll see what I mean by that. If you're a mom, you're a leader. If you're a dad, you're a leader. Uh, if you teach Sunday school, you're a leader. Uh, where, it, it's hard to avoid the responsibilities of leadership in life, no matter who we might be. Now, the text here calls him a witness and a leader and a commander of the people. If I defined leadership according to the hundred books on leadership or something that have come out in the last few years, then I would define leadership thusly. Leadership is the ability to influence other people. A tremendous definition. The ability to influence other people. Actually, the definition could probably go on and say the ability to, uh, to influence other people in order to get them to work toward common goals together, things like that. But today I just want to focus on the idea of the leadership that the ability to influence people. That's why just about everyone in here is a leader. You have a child you want to influence, then you're a leader. If you have a grandchild, if you have a spouse you need to influence, then you're a leader. If you have any kind of position where you oversee people or even relate to people, you want to influence them. So therefore, you may not have a position officially, but you're a leader. And by that definition, the ability to influence people, I submit to you this morning that the Lord Jesus Christ was the world's greatest leader. I want to talk about that aspect of the life of the Lord Jesus with you now. First of all, I want to remind you, he was never a political leader. He was not a military leader. He had no rank in the military. He was never a corporate leader. He didn't head up some great corporation. He was not a professional man, a doctor or lawyer or CPA or someone like that. He was not a counselor. He was a village carpenter in a little tiny village, a crossroads town, if you will, like one of our little villages that dot the, the PD area of South Carolina. He was essentially, uh, in addition to his carpentry work, he was an itinerant preacher, and he was from the hills of Galilee, the most backward section of the nation of Israel at that time. He was poor. He had no money. He had no rank. He had no status. He had no position. He was not a celebrity. He had no clout. He didn't know any important people. He had no connections, no great social advantages that he was, bo that he was born into. In fact, after he left this earth, after his three years of public ministry, they tried to gather together his followers, and they only numbered 120 people. So he didn't have an auspicious career, at least while he was on earth. If leadership is the ability to influence people, it looked at that point in time like perhaps he hadn't influenced very many people because only 120 gathered in that upper room waiting there at the day of Pentecost. 
And yet Jesus Christ, I tell you, has influenced more people than any other single figure in all of history. It's been over 2,000 years since he walked the sands of the Galilee. And yet today, over 2 billion people, billion with a B, an incalculable number when you begin to think about it. Over 2 billion people on this earth identify with Jesus Christ this morning. Now, I didn't say they were all saved people. Many of them are nominal Christians at best. Many of them live in countries where you're baptized as a baby and, 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 and you, know, you never really live a Christian life as we would define it biblically. However, I would hasten to say they're not ashamed of his name. And they live in a country where maybe they've never been to church since they were christened and they'll only go again at a wedding or a funeral. But they identify themselves with Jesus Christ. They respect Jesus Christ. Through the years, millions and millions have died for him. I don't know that that can be said about any other single individual in history. And millions this morning would die for him if they were called upon to do so. I personally believe there are people sitting in this audience right now looking at me that if push came, came to shove, as we say in South Carolina, if it came right down to where the rubber meets the road and you either had to deny Jesus Christ or you had to proclaim yourself a Christian and identify with him, I believe there's a number, large numbers of people sitting right in this room right now, you would choose death over life if it meant denying the Lord Jesus Christ. Such was his influence. And across the world this morning, as we sit here, there are millions upon millions of people gathered in his name. They will sing as we have sung. They will pray as we have prayed. They will teach the scripture as we've taught it to hundreds and hundreds here this morning. Someone will stand and preach the gospel of Jesus Christ from the scripture as I'm doing right now. Across the world, millions of people today will think of him when they leave the place of worship. And all week long, they'll think about him constantly. There will not a day, not even many hours go by, but what they think of Jesus Christ. Such is the power of his influence. And they will worship him in their hearts and in their homes as they read their Bibles and they have their devotional time. They will obey his commandments. They will stop many times during the week and their mind will flit about what he said and they will try to live in such a manner as to please him because he has influenced them so deeply and profoundly. And then they will go out of their places of worship and they will serve him as most of you are going to do this morning. They will serve the Lord Jesus Christ. They will give him time out of their life and out of their schedules. They'll give him money out of their bank accounts to further his cause, they will try to obey his commands. They'll serve every kind of human need. They won't all work for churches. I don't mean that. They will not all teach in Christian schools. I don't mean that. What I mean is that wherever they are, a doctor in the hospital, a nurse beside a sick bed, a banker who is talking to clients, an insurance person, a school teacher. It doesn't matter what walk of life they may be in, a merchant, 
a businessman or a businesswoman. In whatever walk of life they will be, they will try to guide their life according to his values and according to his principles. And his influence will be the most profound influence of anyone anywhere upon their lives. Napoleon, listed among the world's greatest leaders, of course, himself, said these words, and I quote, Alexander the Great, the Caesars, Charlemagne, and I all founded empires. But on on what did we rest the creations of our genius? We rested them upon force. But Jesus Christ came to the earth, lived only 33 years here, and founded an empire upon love, and at this hour, millions would die for him after 2,000 years. And they're still dying for him too, by the way. If I've read the statistics from several organizations that track the number of people who die as martyrs. And it's estimated that in the year 2018, up to this point alone, that there have been 200,000 people plus die simply because they're Christians. They died for the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. In Nigeria, in the Sudan, across the Muslim Middle East, every year tens of thousands. The missionary wrote to me recently from that region in Nigeria, and he said, while several hundred people are worshiping in a church, somebody rolled a hand grenade into the building, and it went off and killed dozens of people and injured a hundred more. Bombs are planted routinely around churches with the attempt to kill Christians. In fact, today in South Africa and Rhodesia, among the Christian churches, they have designated November the 11th as the day of prayer for the persecuted church. The Bible says we're to pray for those who are in chains, meaning those who are being persecuted. Do we ever think to do it? But across this world, what an encouragement, what an inspiration, what a powerful thought. Across this world this morning, millions would die for a man who walked this earth over 2,000 years ago. Such was the influence of Jesus Christ. So if you measure leadership by influence, he is incontrovertibly the greatest single leader in all of human history, is he not? And why do we love him? Well, 1 John chapter 4, 19 answers that question very clearly. We love him because he first loved us. It's much easier to love somebody who loves you, isn't it? What a difference it makes when somebody loves me. How much easier it is for me, in fact, to be able to love them. Jesus himself said, greater love hath no man than this, that a man laid down his life for his friend. And when Jesus Christ went to the cross and he gave his life for you and me, he gave us the single greatest motivation we'll ever have in life, to love him, to serve him. Is he number one in your loyalty today? Is he the one you most want to please Is he the one whose values and principles you model in your life? 
Is Jesus Christ truly the one you love with all your heart, soul, and might? Well, all you have to do is look up here at the cross. And you remember that he went there and he died for our sins. He shed his blood. And in giving his life for us, now think with me for a moment on this. Listen to me clearly. In giving his life for us, he met the single greatest need of my life. The greatest need in my life is to have peace with God. You see, until a person is saved, there's hostility, or the Bible calls it enmity between God and man. You don't hear this preached much now because our image of God in 2018 has been so softened and made so mushy, but I'm, on a he- I'm here to tell you this morning that according to the Scripture, if you're not saved, God is against you. Now, I don't mean that he's out to be vindictive, but I mean God is opposed to everything that I am until my sin debt has been, has been paid. The Bible says there is enmity, there's hostility between God and man because a just God cannot look upon sin with favor. So I have to get the sin debt cleared. I have to get the sins off the page. I've got to get them paid for somehow. And when Jesus Christ died on the cross and gave his life for me, then he met the single greatest need I have in my life, and that is to be reconciled to God, to have peace with God, which passes all understanding according to the Scripture. And so that peace with God gives me forgiveness of my sin. I don't have to go around beaten down anymore. I don't have to go around burdened down with guilt. I don't have to go around throughout my life living with, with oppression because of guilt and the knowledge that, that God is offended by my sins. I can now live with a clear conscience. I can live with a burden lifted. I can live with no guilt, no guilt living. And the only way you can do that is have the assurance in your heart that Almighty God has forgiven you of your sins. I was talking to a man this morning before the service, Benny Feltz, and he was telling me about, he said, my father never really got assurance of his salvation. He was a churchgoer. He was a good man. He believed in the Lord, but he would always pray his prayers that, uh, and, and indicate that he hoped the Lord would be forgiven him. But you really don't have to do that. Based upon the Word of God, you can know today these things have been written that you may know that you have eternal life, and that Jesus Christ has saved you because he went to that cross. And in forgiving me and taking away my sin debt, he's given me eternal life. I can go to heaven with him when I die. And I want to say this morning as a personal testimony, I love the Lord Jesus Christ for that. I love him with all my heart. He's my hero today. And when I say he's the world's greatest leader, I can personalize it and say he's not only the world's greatest leader, he's my leader today. And I want to follow him and I want to be loyal to him. And the greatest single fear I have in my life is that I might bring displeasure to him, that I might displease him, that he would be disappointed in me. After what he's done for me, I don't want to disappoint him. I remember growing up as a kid, I I loved my mom more than I did anybody else on the planet. I love dad, but boy, mom had that special place for me. I was, in fact, they used to kid me and say, Billy is a mama's boy. And man, I love my mom. I still do today. And you know what? 
I wanted to please mama. Now, dad every now and then had to give me a little cup of hickory tea. But all mom had to do is say, Billy, because whatever mama wanted, that's what I wanted. And I can remember a few times she never had even to spank me. She'd look at me and say, Billy, I'm disappointed in you, son. Like a dagger through the heart. She could have beat me within an inch of my life and it wouldn't have hurt like that. Billy, I'm disappointed in you. And sometimes I think about the Lord. And I don't want him to say, Billy, I'm disappointed. That's enough motivation for me, isn't it you? I want to please him. He's the greatest leader in history. He has influenced my life more than any other one and your life if you know him today. And so he's my leader, and I'm going to be loyal to him. But not only was, the greatest, was he the greatest leader in history, he was the most successful trainer of other leaders. One of the marks of leaders is that they try to train others. Jesus realized that his time on earth was short. He only lived here 33 years. His ministry only encompassed about three and a half of those years. He knew that if his cause, we call his cause now Christianity, if his cause were to succeed and to remain down through the centuries, he would have to have somebody who could carry it on after he was after he had left the earth in three and a half years. Turn with me, if you will, please, to the book of Luke, chapter number 6. And so Jesus began to train other people to pick, up the, to pick up the torch and carry it after he knew he would be gone. Luke chapter number 6 and verse number 12, if you will, please. It came to pass in those days that Jesus went out on a mountain to pray, and he continued all night in prayer. Something must have been heavy on his mind and heart that the Lord Jesus Christ would go out and pray all night long, don't you think? What was it? Well, the next day he was going to pick those men who would carry on the cause of Christ, his cause. And no doubt his soul was burdened, and when it was day, he called unto him his disciples. And of them, because he had many more than, we know that he had 70 other disciples at least, of them he chose 12, whom he named apostles, a very special office. And he gives their names. Simon, who he also called Peter, Andrew, his brother, James and John, two other brothers, Philip and Bartholomew, Matthew, Thomas, James, the lesser, the son of Alphaeus, Simon called Zelotes, and Judas, the brother of James, and Judas Iscariot, two Judases, which also the last one, Judas Iscariot, was the traitor. He called those 12 men, and for the next three and a half years, this is early in his ministry, he poured his life into them. He taught them everything they would need to know to carry on the cause of Christianity in, in the world. He trained them. He prayed with them. He empowered them. He put his Holy Spirit upon them and in them. 
And these men became more than just great Christians. They were more than just pious saints. These men became great leaders. And wherever they went, they influenced whole societies for the Christian faith. For example, Thomas went to India. You can go to India today, and there's an ancient church there that dates all the way back to like the year 200 or so. And it's named after St. Thomas because he was the man who came and introduced India to Jesus Christ. And in that town, they built a great cathedral with his name on it. And you can go to other places across Europe and across the Middle East, and there you will find evidence, historical evidence, that these men came and they lived here and they brought the gospel, and the gospel changed men and women. It changed ultimately the culture. It changed society because the message of the gospel had been spread there by these 12 men. And they trained others. Who trained others? Who trained others? And now down through the centuries, this wonderful thing, the cause of Jesus Christ has come down to us. And today we sit here and it's now in our hands. The cause of the Lord Jesus Christ. None of those 12 men had an advanced degree. Not a one of those 12 had money or connections or titles or ranks, or status, or celebrity, the things we think that you must have today to be a great leader. They were common men. They were of the working class. They were fishermen. They were tax collectors. They had dirt under their fingernails. They wore denim coats and worked in blue jeans. They were men of the people. They were not ivory tower intellectuals. They were people just like you and me, common people. And sitting at the feet of Jesus Christ for three and a half years, though, they learned to be leaders as well as godly men. They learned to have within their character what influences people to change their lives. Talk about influence. Talk about leadership. Those 12 ordinary men went out and changed the world. They didn't want to disappoint him either. What did Jesus teach about leadership? Open your Bible, please, to the book of Mark with me. Will you go over there? You're in Luke. Just go back to Mark, a few chapters. Chapter number 9 in the book of Mark. I'm going to give you about three scriptures here because they just nail the essence of what Jesus Christ taught about leadership, and you are a leader. So learn from him. Learn the same thing those 12 men had that changed the course of history. There are 2 billion people today that identify with Jesus Christ 2,000 years later, and it's partially because those 12 men Those 12 men took that gospel and began to pass it down through history. Mark chapter 9 and verse 33. The apostles have been arguing as they're traveling. They're disputing among themselves. And they're actually acting like a bunch of grade school kids. They're disputing about who's going to be great and who's going to be the greatest. And in Mark 9 and 33, he came to 
Capernaum and being in the house, he asked them, what was it you guys were disputing among yourselves by the way about? What were you arguing about back there? Well, they held their peace, for by the way, they had disputed among themselves who should be the greatest. He sat down, and he called the 12 to him, and he said, if you want to be first, you must be last of all and servant of all. You want to be great? You want to be the leader? You want to be number one? Then serve. It's not a position I'm going to give to somebody. It's a position you earn. You don't earn salvation. Salvation is by grace, but you earn leadership. And you earn it by service. Go back over to Mark chapter 10, another chapter away. In Mark chapter 10, James and John came, and they didn't want very much. (laughs) Lord, when you make your kingdom at the end of time and you're reigning on the throne of the whole world, then I'd like to sit on the right, and I'd like for my brother to be able to sit on the left. We don't want much. We just want to be honored above all other people in the whole world. (laughs) And they came to Jesus sounding like little kids on the school ground, right? Me first, teacher. And that's exactly what they were doing here. And in Mark chapter 10 and verse number 42, 41, when the 10 heard about their request, they began to be much displeased with James and John. I guess so. Some of them wanted to sit there too. And Jesus called unto them and he said, you know that they which are accounted to rule over the Gentiles, in other words, out in the secular world, The way people lead is by exercising lordship or power and control. But in verse 43, he says, So shall it not be among you. Whosoever will be great among you shall be your minister. Look up the word minister in the Greek language from which this is translated. Do you know what the word is? Servant. Servant. If you want to be chief, You must be servant of all, verse 44. And that's not just for us. That was what Jesus practiced, verse 45. Even the Son of Man came not to be ministered to or served, but to minister and to give his life a ransom, a payment for many. Notice something there very profound in that passage about leadership. Jesus Christ said, I didn't come to be served. Maybe I ought to put that into my meet the pastor class. Why do you join a church? I think people join a church often saying, I want to be served. I, it's all about me. I want the church to, I, I want the church to meet, all, you know, meet all my needs for comfort and convenience and my preferences. Jesus said, no, it's not about us. He said, I didn't come down here so you would kneel down and worship me, yet the day will come when you'll get to do that. But right now, I came to serve. Do you think of yourself as being a servant of the Lord or a person to be served? He said, greatness is in serving. Greatness is in serving. Look at verse number 43. Whosoever will be great shall be your minister. 
your servant. You see, greatness is not in the title. Greatness is not in position. I can earn 10 degrees. Doesn't make me great. I can pastor the largest church anywhere. Doesn't make me great. What makes me great? Service. Ministering. Meeting the needs of other people in Jesus' name. Remember in John chapter 13, don't turn there, but the disciples are sitting there in a few hours. Jesus Christ is going to the cross. Now look up here and think with me. He's going to go to the cross in a few hours. What would you be thinking about if you knew you were going to go to the cross in a few hours? I'll tell you what Jesus was thinking about. He girded himself with a towel, wrapped a towel around him. He took a basin of water and walked in and he knelt down in front of one of the disciples. It was Peter because Peter was the leader. And he started with Peter. And he knelt down. He took the basin of water and set it down. Peter was stunned. He was absolutely stunned. You know why he was stunned? Because that was the job of a servant. It was not the job of their leader that they'd come to believe was God. And he set the basin down and stunned Peter, said, you can't wash me, I ought to be washing you. Jesus said, oh, no, this is what I came for. I came to serve. He was teaching them the number one lesson in leadership. And what's the number one lesson in leadership? The lesson is leadership is service. And when you serve people, now listen to me, follow my logic. When we serve, then we gain influence with people. And when we gain influence with people, then we can affect them. We can lead them. But if we don't have any influence, if we don't do any service, we don't have any influence. George Washington understood this, as did Abraham Lincoln. Look at their letters from history. They signed their letters, your friend and servant, your obedient servant, your humble servant servant. See, those early leaders of America were not on an ego trip. They were not stuck on themselves. They signed the letter, your humble servant, the president of the United States. They wanted to make Washington a king. He said, no, 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 I'm a servant. It was no wonder then that they wanted to make him a king because of his servant spirit. Interesting thing, in the U.S. Marine Corps, I understand I've not been a Marine but I've read about it. They tell me that the leaders always eat last. Hmm, isn't that amazing? A servant spirit. The officers eat last. Well, you go to the average church buffet, just stand there and it's interesting to watch that church dinner. You got a fight going on up there. Who's going to be first? You got people stalking it out, you know. They're looking at this. They're going to get first. They're going to get two plates and heap them up so the guy in the back has to worry about that, you know. Not our great leaders. Not the men who lead men and women into battle. 
to risk their life. They eat last, step back, they defer. I'm here to serve. You watch an NFL game this afternoon? It'd be some 275-pound guy. He just sacked that quarterback, knocked his block off. Or he just ran through a crowd of tacklers, and he's ran down the field, and they go over the sideline, they put the camera on him. They get a close-up his face, and he sees that he's on TV, and he waves. And what does he say? Hey, coach? No. Great crowds of Americans? No. Hey, mom? You know why he waves and says, mom? Because mom is the most influential person in life. Mom served. Mom changed his diapers. Mom fed him and cleaned up after he threw it back up on her. Mom loved him when it hurt and nobody else cared. And so who's he thinking about? Who has had the most profound influence on him? Mom. And he's a giant of a man but he's influenced by a little woman somewhere in his dreams. You know what leadership is about this morning, ladies and gentlemen, real quickly? Leadership is about learning to live. That's what I've discovered in my life. Leadership is me learning how to live. It's not how to lead people. It's how to live. It's how to be what God wants me to be. And when I do that, the leadership values and principles sort of take care of themselves, don't they? Leadership is about change. Some of y'all really love change around here, I'll tell you that. Oh, boy, do you like change. I found out, in fact, that almost nobody likes change here. In fact, I found out the only people that really like change are wet babies. So they're all down there in one little end of the building, and everybody else here just like to leave the status alone. And so when we have reset day, boy, some of y'all get happy in the Lord because you said, I shall not be moved. That's your theme song. (laughs) And you're going to go down on a minor, minor point. Shame on you. Shame on you. You can't grow and you can't develop if you're not willing to change. Change is what leadership is about, growing and developing and being, developing Christ-like focus, Christ-like character. You know what what we want in our leaders? Well, that's what we should seek in in ourselves. You say, you know what I would like in my leader? I want a leader who can forgive and get over things. Well, okay, then I need to live and get over things, right? I want a leader who has a spirit of joy. I don't want some sourpuss always up there making me feel depressed. I want a leader who has love. I know that he loves and cares for me or patience or kindness. I want a leader who who respects me a leader who is humble, 
a leader who has committed himself or herself, a leader who communicates and tells me what, what the facts are, what reality is. Well, that's the Lord Jesus Christ, the greatest leader in all of history. And what I want in my leader, Jesus, that's what I want to develop in myself. Leadership is influence. Who do you want to influence? A husband? How do you influence your husband or wife? Those very qualities I just reeled off. How do you influence a child? Those very qualities. Love, patience, humility, kindness, forgiveness, joy. Having those qualities is what influence people. What about a cold class member that's away from the Lord, losing their interest in the Lord's work? Well, I've got to have those things to influence them. What about that unsaved person I work with? That unsaved person I work with. How am I ever going to get them to Christ? I can't make them trust Christ but I can try to embody some qualities and people see it and say, that's what I want to be. You know what Florence Baptist Temple needs and the world needs? We need a multitude, a multitude of servant leaders. People are seeking to grow and change and develop Step into new territory. Push out the boundaries because we know that's the price of reaching people for the Lord Jesus Christ. Stand to your feet with me, if you will, please.